everyone. Such an encouragement to see so many young people in this fellowship and sitting under the word of God this morning. May the Lord bless their meeting. It's a joy once again to be here, and I just want to extend from Maggie and I our heartfelt thanks for the generosity of the fellowship here, um, for that wondrous gift toward the missile shelter in Israel. We've actually transferred the funds, but your donation is very much a part of those funds. We did that yesterday on Friday, and we are purchasing and providing for Israel a shelter. It's what they call a cuboid shelter, and it's big enough to hold 20-plus people. And that will go in alongside the somewhere in the region of 70 shelters that the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry has already provided for the protection of the Jewish people. Um, it's something which we have always done, but under these circumstances, something which is even more necessary. Uh, just very briefly, um, these shelters are organized uh, by an organization called Operation Life Shield, based in Israel. It's headed up by an Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel Bowman, who's from Canada originally. And the information that we've received is that currently they are relocating some shelters from those areas where the Israel population has been evacuated in the north to areas where they are in most need. So all of these shelters are going to be placed where they will give most protection to Israel. Last time we were here, I spoke on the need to comfort Israel, comfort ye my people from Isaiah 40. And as we've heard today, that is something which is becoming ever more important, that Israel knows the comfort of the Christian community supporting them. And I applaud the work that you're doing, and that letter from Tony, which I have a copy of, is really wonderful. And it's good to hear that it's been well-received and well broadcast amongst the Jewish community locally. Today I want to move on. Last time we looked at comforting Israel, but we live in an atmosphere of the desire of many baying for the annihilation of Israel, the destruction of the Jewish people. And so what I want to do this morning is to bring a message of hope, because God's got other ideas. And so this morning I want to speak on the future glory of Israel, and our text is going to be Isaiah 60. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles and be ready with Isaiah 60. Actually, we're going to start one chapter earlier, but we'll come to that shortly. Let's just give this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of being able to meet in freedom, to proclaim your truth, to worship you, to praise you, to lift you up as the God of gods, the King of kings, the great I am, the one who provides, who heals, the one who never changes, the one who keeps his promises, and the one for whom apple, uh, Israel is the apple of your eye. Pray this morning, Lord, as we study your word, that uh, the words I speak be your words, not my words. Take away anything of me, Lord. And I pray that as we read your word, you will encourage us, uplift us, challenge us, and even change us. And that you will bless the public reading of your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we look to Israel's future, we need to first understand a little of Israel's history. And so I'm going to begin with a short summary by turning to chapter 59. 
And we'll begin with the first two verses of chapter 59, where we read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, that's Israel, your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Here we read that the Lord was certainly able to save Israel. His hand wasn't shortened and he was always able to hear their cries to him. But Israel could not be saved because her iniquities had separated them from God to such an extent that he'd hidden his face and stopped listening to them. But lack of salvation is never God's issue. It's always man's issue. Put simply, sin separates us from God. In verses 3 through 8, we see how God lays out a number of charges against Israel. David Guzik summarizes God's case against them in these words. He's, he says, your hands are defiled by blood. In other words, they practiced and approved of violence and murder. We read, your lips have spoken lies. They lies with ease and regularity. No one calls for justice. They didn't share God's heart for what was fair and good. Everyone simply thought in terms of their own good. Instead of justice, there were empty words. Instead of truth, there was lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity, as if they were snakes giving birth to more evil servants, bringing forth nothing but death. He who eats their eggs dies, bringing forth nothing but more death and more evil. The act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. Both their hands and their feet are given to sin. But it doesn't end there. Even their thoughts were thoughts of iniquity. They've made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Their choice and the consequences are plain. Their crooked paths will never lead them into the way of peace, meaning peace in the full sense of shalom. Words from David Guzik explaining those verses to us. Verses 7 and 8 are actually quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. In order to emphasize Israel's sinfulness, Paul says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. In verses 9 and 10, as a result of their sin, we see that Israel is walking in darkness. And then they confess... They confess, they say, therefore, is judgment far from us? Neither does justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We're in desolate places as dead men. We walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We're in desolate places as dead men. Walking in darkness, groping for the wall like the blind. I had a similar experience some years ago when I went potholing in Wales and the leader turned, told us to turn our torches off. I don't know if any of you have ever been potholing or in a cave when all the lights go out and you turn your head torch off. But it's impossible to see anything. You, you lose, almost lose any sense of which way's up and which way's down. It's hard even to touch the end of your nose with your finger. 
That was quite some experience, but it helped me to understand what these verses meant. In verse 11 of chapter 59, they continue in their confession. They say, we roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none for salvation. But it is far off from us. Israel looks for salvation, but acknowledges that it's far from them. The Hebrew word from salvation, we've shared this before, is Yeshua. The Hebrew word we use for Jesus. Israel's lamenting their salvation and Yeshua, salvation, Jesus is far from them. In verses 12 to 15, they admit they sinned. They admit they departed from God. They say, for our transgressions are multiplied before thee and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey, and the Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice or no judgment. They'd lied and rebelled. They turned justice on its head by condemning the innocent and acquitting the guilty. We look in the streets today, we can see that everything seems upside down, doesn't it? Just as it was then. Truth is nowhere to be seen. Those who dare to walk in truth are despised. That was the words in Isaiah. But do we not see that today? Those who speak the truth are despised. They're assaulted. They're attacked. An MP who refused to call for a ceasefire, which would have meant the destruction of Israel, had her office vandalized. Those who dare to walk in truth are despised. But going back to our text, Israel realized that this displeased the Lord. And it's no different today. It displeases the Lord today. But it wasn't the Lord that was blind that he could not see. It was they who were blind. There was a time when we lived in darkness, wasn't there? There was a time when salvation was far from us as well. Because we are all sinners. There are no exceptions. And we all need light to see, don't we? But it's only the light of Christ that can save us. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, he said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Unbelief leads only to eternal darkness. The light of Christ leads to eternal light and eternal life. Are you groping around blindly in the dark as if you had no eyes? Are any of you stumbling at noonday as in the night or in desolate places as dead people? If those words speak to you, then I urge you to turn to the only source of light that can save you, and that's to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus says, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In verse 16 of chapter 59, the Lord saw that there was no one to represent those who'd turned from their sin. No intercessor, no one to save. No mortal could or can possibly bring salvation. Not Moses, the greatest prophet who ever lived. Not Joshua, not David. Not even anybody in authority in the church today can bring salvation. And we read, therefore, that his arm, God's own arm, brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. You see, only the Lord can bring about salvation. It was only then, in those days, that he could bring salvation to his people. It's today only him that can bring salvation to his people, Israel, and to anyone else. But how did he do this? Through his arm. And who is his arm? Jesus. Verses 17 to 19 look ahead to Jesus' second coming. He appears clothed, that's Jesus, appears clothed as a mighty warrior to repay the enemies of Israel. And it's only then that Israel will finally see the salvation of the Lord. That's the final time of her seeing salvation. The glory of the Lord will be known and respected from east to west. And when Jesus finally defeats the Antichrist and his army. And then in the final verses of chapter 59, we read that the Redeemer, who is none other than Christ at his second advent, comes to the faithful, repentant remnant in Zion, in Jerusalem. Verses 20 and 21, we read there that the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and for the next five days. Is that what it says? No. What does it say? From henceforth and forever. Amen. And forever means what? Forever. The Hebrew word for redeemer here is ge'al. And it's the same word used to describe Boaz in the book of Ruth. If you remember, Boaz redeemed Ruth by paying the bride price or ransom. And just as Ruth was the bride of Boaz, the church is the bride of Christ. And just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, Christ has redeemed the church. Those who have placed their belief, their faith, their trust in him. We read in Titus 2 verse 14 that Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a special people, a peculiar people, a people set apart for himself who are zealous of good works. And in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 we read that the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. We read in Romans 6, verse 23, do we not that the wages or the penalty of sin is death? But that penalty was paid in full by Christ on the cross of Calvary. He died in our place. He died in your place, in my place. He paid our ransom. He set us free from the power of sin and death. We read that in Romans 8, verse 2. And so in Isaiah 59, we see how Christ turns Israel from their sin and establishes his eternal covenant with her. 
bringing us now to our text for today, which speaks of a glorious promise and a new era for Israel and the messianic kingdom that follows the Lord's second coming. So let's turn now to chapter 60 and read of Israel's future glory. Chapter begins in the first three verses like this. Arise, shine, for thy light is come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. We see here how in these verses, the Lord appeals to Israel to rise up because their light has returned. The glory of the Lord is upon them. Gentiles will come to their light, Israel's light, and kings to the brightness of Israel's rising. In Ezekiel 11, verse 23, if we remember back then how God removed his presence from the people, the Shekinah glory departed from the temple because of the corrupt behavior of the leaders of Israel. But in Isaiah 58, verse 8, we see how the Lord promises Israel that his glory will someday return. When it does, we read there that he says, Then shall thy light break, break forth as the morning, and thine health shall spring forth speedily, and thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy rearward. But this will only happen when they truly repent and turn back to him. And this Israel does when she finally confesses her sin, as we read earlier in Isaiah 59, verse 12. They said, our transgressions are multiplied before thee, our sins testify against us, our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. Israel realized her sin and confessed. And now in chapter 60, verse 1, the glory returns. Arnold Fruchtenbaum summarizes these events as follows. He says, in chapter 58... Israel was told of the problem. In chapter 59, Israel admits and solves the problem. And in chapter 60, the promise is fulfilled and the Shekinah glory returns. In verse 2, we read, For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. This time of gross darkness is a reference to the tribulation as it's described in Joel chapter 2, verse 2 where we read a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people and a strong, there hath not been ever the like, neither shall any more after it, even to the years of many generations. It's a description of the tribulation to come. When the world is at its darkest moment, God's glory returns to the nation of Israel. That Hebrew word for darkness in verse 2 of chapter 60 is choshek. It's the same word used in chapter 2 of uh, Joel, where we see a day of darkness. And that term thick or gross darkness in Hebrew means that it will be a time of heavy, overpowering darkness. And it's at this precise moment when Israel is threatened with total destruction by the armies of Antichrist that the Lord will send his glory, he'll send his arm, his Messiah, And Jesus returns to destroy Israel's enemies. And when he does, in verse 2, we read that his glory shall be seen upon thee, Israel. The Lord's glory will shine upon his people, upon Israel. And then in verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. 
We see here how Israel will reflect or radiate the light of God's glory to the nations, dispelling that darkness of the surrounding world. And in those days, as we read in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 23, it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Israel will be the means of drawing the nations of the earth to the Lord in the time of Messiah's reign of righteousness upon the earth. You know, as believers today, the glory of the Lord is also risen upon us. Do you know that? Do you understand that? We were given the indwelling Holy Spirit when we were born again. And we've been given the light of the gospel to draw men to Christ. Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 21, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? Dearly beloved, you and I are the light of the world. And we must allow that light to shine forth in order to attract people to the Lord. Having said that, there are and will be many who refuse to receive the good news of the gospel message. And sometimes one might ask the question, why? Well, we see the answer to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where we read that the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. It's Satan who's blinded them. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against powers and principalities in the heavenly places, don't we? But I trust that there's none among us today who are blinded. That's my hope. But I'm compelled to ask that question again. Are you one of those that hasn't seen the light? Or have you seen the light of the glorious gospel of Christ that will lead you out of darkness and into eternal life? a challenge that we must all ask of those that don't believe continuing in our text Isaiah 60 verses 4 through 9 Israel becomes the center of Gentile attention we read that the Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising lift up thine eyes round about and see all they that gather themselves together they come to thee Thy sons shall come from afar, and thy daughters shall be nursed at their side. Then shalt thou see and flow together, and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged, because the abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba will come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister unto thee. They shall come up with acceptance on mine altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. Who are these that fly as a cloud and as the doves to their windows? 
Surely the isles shall wait for me and the ships of Tarshish first to bring thy sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. You know, this speaks of a, the messianic or millennial kingdom to come. And these verses mention a number of nations, some of whom were once enemies of Israel. But now they are benevolent toward Israel. They will help to regather the Jews, verse 4. They, shall their, they will share their wealth with the Jewish people in verses 6 and 7. And in verse 9 we read that the ships of Tarshish will bring thy sons from afar, their silver and gold with them. Speaking of the final regathering of the Jewish people who were scattered in the diaspora, bringing them back to the land of Israel. I just want to digress for a moment because it's important here to understand that the regathering of Israel is a different event from the return of Israel from exile. That return from exile took place in three stages which began in 538 BC when the Jewish people returned from Babylon under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And it was during this period that the people of Israel built the second temple. And then about 80 years later, a second group returned to the land under the leadership of Ezra. And then finally in 445 BC, many more returned under the leadership of Nehemiah. And that completed the return from exile. But that return from exile was a regional event and it only applied to Jews returning from Babylon. But on the other hand, the regathering of Israel, which we've been referring to here is international, and it affects Jews from every nation in the world. But there won't just be one regathering, there'll be two. The first is a physical regathering. It's a regathering in unbelief, and it's a regathering to just a part of the land that was promised by God to Abraham and his descendants, that land we know as modern-day Israel. And that began in earnest, although there was an earlier alias back in the 19th century, but this return, this regathering rather, began in earnest with the rebirth of the state of Israel in 1948. And it sets the stage for the tribulation to come, that time of Jacob's trouble when Israel will be judged and disciplined by the Lord, as is described in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38, and again in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 17 to 22. Ezekiel 20 verse 34 says, I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 tells us that this regathering and unbelief will occur before the tribulation begins. And the restoration of the Jewish state fulfills prophecies speaking of a regathering and unbelief in preparation for judgment. But there's a secondary gathering that's going to happen, and that one's going to be a spiritual regathering when believing Israel returns in faith to be restored not only to all of the land promised by God to Abraham, but fully restored to the Lord. And we read that in Romans chapter 11, verses 26 to 27, where Paul tells us that all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Remember that verse when Israel calls upon the Lord. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Baruch Abba Shem Adonai. And that second regathering will set the stage for the millennium and the final blessing. Well, I hope that digression helps you to understand the, the differences there. But coming back to our text, 
The Gentile nations will not only bring wealth to Israel, as we read in chapter 60, verses 6 through 9, but they will also serve Israel. We first read of this in Isaiah in chapter 45, verse 14. We read here, Thus saith the Lord, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee. In chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplications unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. And then again in chapter 49 of Isaiah, verse 23, And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. And as we come to verses 10 through 14 of Isaiah chapter 60, we read yet more detail of this. We read here that the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. And the Lord says, For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the, the forces or the wealth and resources of the Gentiles, and that their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. The glory of Lebanon shall come unto thee, the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. The sons also of them that afflicted thee shall come bending unto thee, and all they that despised thee shall bow themselves down at the soles of thy feet, and they shall call thee the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One. Of Israel. You see, in the Messianic kingdom, Gentile nations are going to be involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. We read that in verse 10. That same Jerusalem that had been laid waste by the armies of Antichrist. Zechariah 4.2 says that the, the Lord will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city should be taken, and the houses rifled. And it goes on to talk about the women being ravished, etc., and the city going into captivity painful thoughts even of what recently happened but in the messianic kingdom israel is living in perfect peace that shalom shalom enjoying god's mercy rather than his wrath in verse 11 of chapter 60 there's no need for the gates of israel of jerusalem to be locked because there's no longer any danger they'll always be open and the nations led by their kings will bring their wealth into the city in verse 12, we read that any nation not serving Israel in this way will be completely destroyed, utterly destroyed. In verse 13, Lebanon will send their finest trees to beautify the, the place of the Lord's sanctuary, the place where his feet step. Just as earlier temples contained wood from the trees of Lebanon, this fourth millennial temple will also be built with these same magnificent trees. God's sanctuary will be a place of beauty and Jerusalem will be recognized as the dwelling place of the Lord. In verse 14, those who previously persecuted Israel will come in humility, bowing at the feet of the Jewish people they once despised. The city of Jerusalem that they avowed to destroy, denying that Israel had any right to either the land or the city, will now be recognized as the city of the Lord the Zion of the Holy One of Israel and descendants of those nations that 
once despised Israel will recognize that Jerusalem or Zion is God's chosen city, the place where he dwells, where he places his feet. Today there are those who continue to call for Israel to be removed from the river to the sea, wanting to annihilate the Jews and destroy Israel once and for all. But what they all fail to realize is the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is an all-powerful God who will one day utterly destroy them. Hallelujah. We do pray, of course, that before that happens, many will be saved. The fact that Israel is hated by many and despised by others is echoed in the psalmist. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 5. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. There's no escape from the justice of the Lord, the judgment of the Lord. The Lord says of Jerusalem in verse 15 of chapter 60, Whereas thou hast been forsaken and hated, so that no man went through thee, I will make thee an eternal excellency, a joy of many generations. And in Psalm 2 verse 6, he says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Once forsaken and hated, In the messianic millennial kingdom, Jerusalem will be looked upon as a place of eternal excellency, of joy, and of majesty. It will be a place to behold, and the Lord will cause others to take pride in her. In verse 16, we move on to read of further blessings for Jerusalem and Israel in the future kingdom. The Lord says, You shall also suck the milk of the Gentiles, and shall suck the breast of kings, And you shall know that I, the Lord, am the Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Walvard's Bible Knowledge Commentary explains this way. It says, much as a nursing child gets sustenance from its mother, so Israel will be sustained by the wealth of the nations. This blessing will cause Israel to recognize all the more that the Lord really is the unique God of the world, her Savior redeemer and her mighty one but it doesn't stop there look at verse 17 the lord speaks of more blessing he says for brass i'll bring gold and for iron i'll bring silver and for wood brass and for stones iron i will also make thy officers peace and thine exactors righteousness well what does that mean well basically it means that base construction metals materials like bronze wood and stone are going to be replaced with gold and silver and iron And that the rebuilt city of Jerusalem will be a beautiful place to behold. It will also happen that Israel's leaders will ensure a place of peace. And those who do judge will judge rightly and fairly. And as a result in verse 18 of chapter 60 we read that violence shall no more be heard in thy land. Wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation and thy gates peace. But it doesn't stop there. As we draw to the end of the chapter, there's even more blessings. Look at verses 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee. But the Lord 
shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God thy glory. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself, for the Lord shall be thy everlasting light, and the days of thy morning shall be ended. There'll be no longer any need for light from the sun during the day or the moon during the night. Instead, the Shekinah glory will be an everlasting light. The glory of the Lord will shine over Jerusalem and the entire land, providing all the light that's needed. And the Lord himself is that light. But that also brings an end to the time of Israel's mourning. We see that in Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 and 9. Her mourning comes to an end because the Lord will swallow up death in victory. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him and we will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then chapter 60 ends with the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham when Israel finally possesses the land. Look at verses 21 and 22. Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified, says the Lord here. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. Finally, finally, the now righteous people of Israel, the apple of God's eye, will forever be firmly planted in the land that God promised them. We see that in Genesis 15, verse 18, when he made a covenant with Abraham, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. The nation that was once small will become great in number. A little one should become a thousand. To God be the glory. And so, as we close, we summarize Isaiah 60. Let me again refer to David Guzik, his Enduring Word Commentary. He says, one, verses 1 to 3 speak of the glorious light of God's kingdom. Verses 4 to 13 of great treasures that come to Israel in the kingdom. Verses 14 to 18 tell of how the nations treated Israel in the past and how they will treat them in the future kingdom. Verses 19 to 22, how the Lord will treat Israel in the future kingdom. When we remember the context of Isaiah's prophecy, it makes, even more, it, makes it even more precious. In much of this book, says David Guzik, he speaks from before the time of the Babylonian captivity and exile to the time of the exile to those dispossessed people of God. He points them to a day when they shall inherit the land forever. Why? Because they're so good? No. But the Lord says it will be. And so it will be seen as the work of my hands, the Lord's hands, that I, the Lord, may be glorified. God didn't say it would happen soon, though in an eternal scale we might consider it soon. But God would hasten it or hurry it along and expedite it in its time. When its time has come, the Lord will hasten it, but not before its time. David Guzik goes on to say the promise seems too good to be true. And we're conditioned to think that if it seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. How often have we heard that? But God 
is too good not to be true. End of quote. Just one final thought. After Jesus' second coming, the remaining Jewish exiles in the diaspora finally return. Gentile nations bring wealth and tribute to the Lord. Foreigners rebuild the city of Jerusalem and her gates will be continually open. No longer will the city's gates be shut to keep out the nations who seek to destroy her. Instead, those nations and their rulers will come in peace. The temple will be rebuilt. Jerusalem acknowledged by those who once oppressed her. And God's presence will assure continued peace and justice. That, brothers and sisters, is God's unbreakable promise of future glory for his people, Israel. And we all say to the Lord, come soon, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Maranatha.